0: Hello and welcome to All Things Disability, a podcast from Northeast ARC. I'm Joanne Simons, the President and CEO of Northeast ARC. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Stephen Eidelman. Stephen is the H. Rodney Sharp Professor of Human Services Policy and Leadership at the University of Delaware. In this role, he focuses on community-based and inclusive supports to people with intellectual disabilities and their families, development of leadership in the intellectual and developmental disabilities field, and research on international policy and practice, particularly in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union.
1: You know, we've undersold what people with intellectual disabilities are capable of doing, And we've got to make certain going forward that we do it in the context of work, in the context of living in the community, in the context of supporting their family and their relationships.
0: Prior to joining the University of Delaware, Stephen served as executive director of the ARC of the United States. He is past president of the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and has twice been honored with the organization's Leadership Award. Steve is also Executive Director of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today, and how do you manage to do so many things?
1: You know, when you don't do things well, you get to pile lots of stuff on top of each other. Uh, You know, like you, a good part of your waking hours are spent either thinking about or doing something related to your organization, and this sort of differentiation between it's the end of the business day and wait until tomorrow, it doesn't exist, right? You just find yourself doing stuff.
0: So it's been fun. That's great. Steve, after graduating from college, you earned your MSW and apparently you thought you were going to become a social worker. At that point in your career, did you anticipate working with people with disabilities? And if not, what what developed your interest in this field?
1: So when I was in social work school, you had to do a one-year internship somewhere, 30 hours a week. And I was going in a very different direction than disability. And the dean cornered me one day uh, and said, You know, there's this place over at Johns Hopkins called the Kennedy Institute, and they want somebody interested in policy and administration and disability. And I said, Well, that's not really my thing. And they said, And they'll pay your tuition and a five thousand dollar stipend. So (laughs) I did my one year there, and I ended up staying for six, uh, and you sort of get hooked. You know, It's our field is a combination of research, practice, and civil and human rights, and you don't see those things coming together in a lot of places, but they certainly do when you work with people with disabilities and their families.
0: When you began your career, what did it look like in terms of services and supports for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities?
1: Well, I'm dating myself, but it was the mid-1970s, and you know, we were still I was in Maryland, heavily heavily institutionalized. There were some fledgling attempts to get people into group mm-hmm. homes, but the group homes were 15, 20 people. They were big, huge houses. So there wasn't much, and there certainly wasn't generous funding from the federal mm-hmm. government at that time. It was all dependent upon what the state could do and what the state's leadership could do. And it was not any, anybody I can look back on and say, God, they got it, because it was way beyond mid-70s when they got it.
0: We've come a long way. Let's switch a little bit to your current position at the University of Delaware, and what areas you're focused on, both as a professor and researcher.
1: So this is my last year at the university. I've been here since 2005. I never thought I would be in an academic setting for that long, and I'm using this last year to sort of cement some relationships in place you know we started this thing called the national leadership consortium on developmental disabilities to focus on practitioners because everybody likes focus on undergraduate and graduate students we decided let's look at people with 5 or 10 or 15 years experience and help shape their career going forward in terms of their commitment to individualization to listening to people with disabilities and listening to families so January 1st we moved it out of the university to the Council on Quality and Leadership, in part because a small national nonprofit is much more flexible than a big university. And second, we wanted to maintain control of content. And in a university, you don't necessarily have that. So that's pretty much what I am doing my last year. I'm putting some things in place with Special Olympics International. I plan to spend some time with them after I'm done working as a volunteer on a couple of things they're doing around inclusion and inclusive education.
0: Are you able to talk a little bit more about what's down the road with Special Olympics.
1: Well, if you know Tim Shriver, and you know he's got grand plans for things and is very expansive and effusive. and then the rest of us have to run behind and pick up those things. He's got great ideas uh, and in fact amazing ideas. You know, I worked for his mother and I work with his father, and he's one of those people who inherited the best qualities of both parents. Uh, you know he has Mrs. Shriver's analytic abilities and Sergeant Shriver's effusiveness and expansiveness. So I think we're gonna look at how can we get countries to commit to inclusion of people with disabilities not as an afterthought, but as part of their overall strategy and not just in education, but in housing and employment and healthcare. So it's a big a big deal, and you know, we'll see what comes out of it. I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Well, and I'm excited about that. Thinking back on your career, and of course, you've just told us that it's not ending, it's just going to be continuing into a, actually maybe even a broader way. What have been some of the major milestones of progress that, that you've seen that some of our listeners may not be aware of?
1: Uh, I think deinstitutionalization seems like its old hat, but uh, I was there when the last person moved out of Penhurst State School and Hospital. I was the deputy director of the Department of Public Welfare, where it was housed. And to see that we could get everybody, no matter what their disability was, uh, living in a house with one or two other people, nobody more than three, it was almost unimaginable when I started, and yet this was only 20 years later. And I think we made the first step, got people out of places or kept them out. Uh, The second step of helping people have full citizenship and participation in society, we're not there yet. Uh, There's a movement to resegregate people, So the post-pandemic stuff, the good news is we figured out how to keep people alive uh, and functioning. And the bad news is the employment situation for people doing direct support, direct support professionals, aren't enough of them. And they don't stay long enough. And yet they're crucial to the whole model we've built. So we've got to figure that out, what we can do, given their strengths and weaknesses and given the
0: financing of the field. That's probably our biggest challenge and we're facing it every day and so are families. Yeah, and I
1: I think, you know, we're going to see some programs close, not due to lack of funding, but lack of adequate funding or they can't get staff. You know, I went to a restaurant the other day with a friend for breakfast and we get there and the little sign on the door, sorry, we're not open for breakfast anymore because uh, we can't get enough staff. When I talk to people who operate services directly, they're facing that same kind of thing of, okay, we're not going to be able to run this program anymore. We can't get anybody to work. And that's a thing.
0: I've actually recently seen data that has demonstrated the shrinking of our system has actually already begun either in reduced census at existing programs or closure of programs and the decision by many providers not to expand even when there's an opportunity for yeah, funding and, to do that. You
1: know, what, do you, what do you say to parents? What do you say to people with disabilities who've been waiting five, 10, 15 years for something and all of a sudden, well, it's going to be another five years. Or you're in this program now, but the program is not going to exist anymore. We got to figure something out for you. It's unconscionable that we have to do that. But if we don't tell people straight out what's going on, how can it ever change?
0: I agree. We need to tell people, and it's kind of uh, ironic. I mean, that's not probably the right word, but you know, for several decades we've been told been told that this day was coming when the baby boomers and the declining birth rates were going to collide in a The fact that there would not be enough people to provide services. You know, we depend every day to have somebody pick up our trash, and we want that to happen. And we certainly want people to be taken care of uh, who need these kinds of supports, and technology is only going to go so far in bridging that gap. You've, uh, I want to talk more about you though. You've had a variety of roles before coming to the University of Delaware, and we've talked about a couple of them, but working in state government, the private sector, advocacy organizations like the ARC of the United States. How does all that experience not only inform your academic work, but now the work that's going forward that you're gonna do with uh, Special Olympics?
1: You know, I'm, I'm a sort of a raging incrementalist. I think we can make changes and move things forward and just keep on building and building on successes of the past and learn from the failures of the past. So I'm not pessimistic. Uh, but I'm not overly optimistic, either. I think that didn't answer your whole question.
0: That's that's okay. I think you've given us uh, a little bit of opportunity to hope and to think about the future. Uh, let's talk about employment. Uh, you focused a great deal on employment, and let's talk a little bit about why employment is such a critical area of focus for people with disabilities.
1: Yeah, I think the easy answer is it's what adults in our society do. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, the first or second question you get asked is, what do you do? Where do you work? And people with disabilities have been seen as a group will sort of put them to one side. People working in mainstream organizations in businesses and government and nonprofits are seen as contributors. It doesn't matter how much they contribute. They're seen in a positive light. It's also where most of us make friends, where we meet romantic interests, where we meet partners, uh, and if you're in a sheltered workshop or a day program all day long, with the only people, I visited one the other day, and the good news was magnificent program, doing great stuff with people with significant disabilities. The bad news is there was nobody there without a disability who wasn't paid to be there and sort of limits people's social contacts. And, you know, we've undersold what people with intellectual disabilities are capable of doing. And we've got to make certain going forward that we do it in the context of work, in the context of living in the community, in the context of supporting you know, their family and their relationships. And we're not there yet with work. Our numbers keep on going up and down and up and down. I read an article yesterday. Uh, it was either the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, says people with disabilities are doing better in this market because employers are starting to say, maybe this person can do the job that we need done. So.
0: That's true. We've seen a great opportunity in the last few years here in our work at the Northeast Arc in being able to place people with disabilities into competitive employment. While we might have suspected that during COVID, we would have seen a slowdown of that, we've actually seen an increase in the opportunities for people for just what you've said. And hopefully we can sustain that uh, interest by employers. It, you know, that's,
1: that's that's the key thing, I think, you know, when when we get out of this crisis, when somebody figures out immigration uh, and we can get people from other countries to come again and who do direct support, what's going to happen to those people with disabilities? Are they going to lose their jobs? Are they going to have you know, their hours cut back? Are they going to get their salaries capped? We don't know. We've not been there before. Not like this, anyhow.
0: Right. Do you see any, any other trends in employment? Uh, I see people
1: starting small businesses, sometimes the person with a disability leads, sometimes the small business is there to employ people with disabilities. People who are more intellectually capable, people on the autism spectrum, there's a place half a mile from my office in Delaware where they're doing coding for major banks and computer programming. And for people with intellectual disabilities, that may or may not be in their future. Uh, But there's all sorts of jobs in the local economy that people with disabilities can do, and we just scratch the surface.
0: It reminds me of uh, an app app I just recently saw and that we actually utilize here at the Northeast Arc, which gives people who are competitively employed remote supports so that they don't have to depend on an individual to be there to tell them, hey, Steve, you're not doing this right. They can just look at a video of themselves Having previously been recorded, doing the job the way it's supposed to be do done. Yeah, and so we're we're excited about excited about continuing to explore that. We're using it successfully and going to uh, do more of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we found during the pandemic when people had to stay home is that people who we never thought were capable could use an iPad or a, a smartphone and communicate with their family, with their friends, with their staff. And it's like, wow, we didn't know you could do that. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is why didn't we know? Why didn't we give people those opportunities and see what they could do, not what they can't do?
0: I to that point, I loved yesterday. I walked around in one of our uh, day programs, which actually is located in a mall, which addresses the issues of isolation because the people are able to not stay in our program, but you know go out to a restaurant, do their shopping, have their jobs in this environment, which is uh, exposing a whole lot of people to uh, the capabilities of individuals with disabilities. But what I loved was I saw s- several folks on their iPhone, you know, and a few years ago we would have told them to put their iPhone away, but, you know, we tolerate everybody using their iPhone during work, and the same opportunity has to be applied to people with disabilities. So it just looks like we have made some progress in how we value people with disabilities. And
1: Yeah, and it goes back to the work thing again, you know, because what is valued in our society you know, good looks, intelligence, wealth, and work. I mean, you, our lexicon is filled with words about work. When you come home at the end of the day and you say, oh, I worked so hard today, you're not complaining, you're bragging. Uh, you're saying, I did something socially useful today. And I think people with disabilities have figured it out that when you have a job, it, it's your real wage, you're treated differently than when you're in a day program where you have no job.
0: Correct. Tell me about the impact of the Kennedy Foundation, the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation's impact on our field? Because I'm not sure that many people are aware of the impact that they have had and continue to have.
1: It was interesting in that, you know, Mrs. Shriver, um, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, uh, sort of worked there full time without getting paid from the 1950s until she died um, and used the sort of notoriety and contacts and prestige of the family to uh, attract other people to the field. Um, Some of their initial grants were things like the John F. Kennedy Institute for Handicapped Children at Hopkins and the Kennedy Institute at Vanderbilt. They got sort of prestigious scholars to pay attention to intellectual disabilities when they had not paid attention before. And they could express through what they did in Special Olympics, uh, which started at the Kennedy Foundation. They could sort of show the world, look, high value people, movie stars, star athletes, star politicians are willing to come and interact with people with intellectual disabilities. And they did that. They were a voice in the wilderness in the 50s and 60s. And it wasn't until we had a uh, sort of major movement on education, which they were in part behind, uh, where the general public could have caught up.
0: And we love to brag in Massachusetts because Unified Sports was born here. And we think that Special Olympics uh, legacy of bringing in uh athletes with disabilities and athletes without disabilities playing on the same playing field equally has been a game changer for for many athletes
1: yeah when i ask students you know how did you get interested in disability uh, most of them say either unified sports in high school uh, or best buddies sometimes they say both and you know those are both kennedy family things in a big way Um, and if given people an opportunity people with disabilities an opportunity to interact with their age peers without disabilities in a fun thing. You know, this is not a serious discussion. This is, we're going to go play basketball. Uh, and basketball is fun to play. Having a serious discussion about disincentives to work or discrimination, you know, those are heavy topics.
0: We've also found anecdotally that Special Olympics and Best Buddies has the unintended impact of developing social um, capital for people with disabilities, so they don't have to rely on the social capital of people who are paid to be with them or their families. And many have found employment through their connections through unified sports or yeah, best studies. is wonderful? Yeah. It's a yeah, great thing. Uh, so in your role as a professor, now we're going to go back to your current role that you're going to be transitioning from. You've been training future leaders in disab- disability policy, and I've been uh, honored that I've been able to actually Uh, attend parts of your uh, disability policy training and was so impacted by the energy, enthusiasm, intellect of the folks that have chosen to be in our career. What are some of the most important things they need to be able to learn to have impact, to have the kind of impact that you've had?
1: They have to learn all about something that's not disability specific, but it's change management. How do you manage change? How do you convey to people Here's where we are, here's where we want to go, here are the steps to get there, and then get people on board with that change. And There's always resistance to change in any field, on any issue, but the more we can help people, help other people come along, they don't all have to be leaders, and it's important to have lots of followers and lots of sort of rank-and-file participants. And then the second thing is to give people courage, to say, you know, this is hard. You know, managing change, improving the lives of people with disabilities, if it was easy, we would have done it already. It's hard. But it's possible, and you have the skills to build a team to make those things happen.
0: Thank you. I do want to touch on your international policy work, because that's something here in the United States many of us are not aware of. We know there's still, though, many countries where people with disabilities are currently institutionalized. Are there particular countries where we're seeing progress? I think we're seeing.
1: And I'm not up to date on what's been going on since the pandemic, but I think we're seeing progress in a lot of places, and we're seeing two steps backwards in other places. Uh, I, I remember going to an institution in Croatia outside of Zagreb, and it looked like sort of the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't absolutely horrible, but it was horrible. Uh, there was a plan to get it closed, get everybody moved into the community, and all sorts of political machinations happened, and that plan was put on hold. Uh, that whole country has had this similar kind of thing. Other Eastern European countries and former Soviet Union countries have had the same thing. They have institutions. It's a model they know. There's corruption there because it sort of supports the talent of the community that it's in. Um, doing some work in Israel, and I think the Israelis have got the tiger by the tail in terms of helping people leave institutions, and they've got a big number set out there, and the government has acknowledged it and agreed to fund it. So we'll see what happens there over the next couple of years. It's counterintuitive to lots of people. And unless you have true believers, and unless we have people like Joanne Simons who are out there who get this at the gut level, uh, you got to bring people along. And if you've had no exposure to people with disabilities or no exposure to progressive thought, uh, how do you get there? It's not magic, but it's a journey to be taken. And you got to have somebody helping you along that journey.
0: Yeah, we're really proud that when immigration was not a problem, that we would Employ folks uh, from former Soviet Union, and they had never seen people with disabilities walking on the street. And after spending two years with us, they would go back and change their country. And you need those drivers.
1: In, in Delaware, where I work, the people who mostly did direct support were from West Africa. So they came with good English skills. And they could come, work, go to community college, which is very inexpensive here, get a degree, transfer to the, one of the universities in the state, and all of a sudden it's a win-win. You have people with new college educations and you have people who understand disabilities all meshed together. And it's just a wonderful thing to say.
0: Well, we're hopeful that we're gonna make progress on immigration. I want to uh, end on a positive note, although I think we just did. But at this point in your career, what makes you optimistic about the future of our field?
1: It's like flowers popping up uh, with snow on top in the spring. You know, There are people who are doing great things and you can go five minutes away and see things that you go, oh, that's not good. So there's entrepreneurial spirit in the disability field among professionals. And there's a commitment. It's no longer just sort of this new and exciting adventure. It's a whole established field practice and programs and policies that people can have influence on, can operate and have a whole life uh, spent in service to people with intellectual disabilities and their families and their communities. And there's nothing better than when all that stuff comes together.
0: Well, I want to thank you and for this informative conversation. It's been an honor for me because every time that I'm with you or talk to you, I learn something. And today was no exception. We want to thank Peabody TV for providing our wonderful recording space, and all things disability is made possible through the financial support of the Changing Lives Fund, which was created through a gift from Stephen Rosenthal. To learn more about Northeast Arc and to find past episodes of this podcast, please visit any-arc.org.